Um, well, good day, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Drones for Good podcast for this week. Andrew Crow's my name, um, as you know well by now. I hope everyone's doing well. Um, who can believe that we're we're a month and one day from Christmas, which is um, which is kind of unbelievable given um, COVID and lockdowns and everything else. And despite that, here we are, um, four weeks and a bit away from uh, from the big fella coming and delivering some presents. I'm pretty excited um, about that. Um, today, ladies and gents, we are moving into one of our um, Australian government organisations uh, to talk about some some stuff around marine and geoscience and, and other bits and pieces. And today, I'm really pleased to have um, Aero here from Geoscience Australia. G'day, Aero. How are you? G'day, Andrew. Nice to uh, nice to talk to you. Yeah, I'm really excited, and we don't get a lot of um, you know government uh, organisations coming on the podcast, so we certainly appreciate um, Geoscience Australia kind of stepping up and and leading the way and, and coming to have a chat this morning with us. Very happy to be here. It's a very interesting topic for us as well. So looking forward to our discussion. Yeah, cool. And uh, and so whereabouts are you? And and um, whereabouts are you located? Where, where are we talking to you from? I'm joining you from uh, the Kringai Chase National Park. It's the land of the Garigal people, 30 kilometres north of Sydney. Lovely. It's a really nice, uh, really nice part of Sydney, actually, up there, isn't it? Yeah, it's fantastic. I guess that's one of the benefits of the pandemic. Uh, remote working has become much more uh, efficable during uh, during these times. So I've been uh, back up here since since March and uh, helping about out a bit with the family and continuing my role uh, in the Canberra office remotely. Yeah, awesome. And I think um, that's a really important point to make. You know, there's the, the the pandemic's been horrible, as we know, and it's been a really terrible time for a lot of people. But I think there's been some real positive things coming out of it. And, and you know, you spoke of one then, uh, working from home and, and those types of things is becoming, you know, far more acceptable than it has in the past. And I know that, um, you know, we, well, I feel there's more acceptance to heck, getting along to schools and, you know, get, seeing your kids' stuff at school and stuff like that. Have you seen a bit of a shift, you know, in your em- employment um, around that, that sort of area yeah i think there's been a huge shift and i think uh, pressure really drives innovation so i think we've all uh, seen the, the jump and uptake in in remote um networking and uh and meeting capabilities that's just allowed a whole different level of flexibility and really revolutionized working so i'd hope to to see that uh, support kind of continue and people to have much healthier work-life balances and it's certainly the case uh, at, at our organization yeah, awesome. And, um, you know, this podcast is one example. I, I envisaged when we started this, um, you know, nearly a couple of years ago now that I was going to do all these podcasts in person around around the country and everything else. And about 90% have been done by Zoom now. So I think we've finally got it sorted and we know how to do things now, which is uh, which is exciting. Hey, um, Aero, you're from Geoscience Australia. Um, can you give a, and I'll be upfront and honest, I hadn't really heard of Geoscience Australia a lot before uh, before we, we invited you guys to come along and have a chat. Can you give our listeners a bit of an insight into what Geoscience Australia is and, and what you guys do? Yeah, no problems. So that's, uh, that's, that's not surprising. Geoscience Australia does sometimes <laughs> fly under the radar. What we are is uh, a Commonwealth government organisation uh, and we are essentially the nation's uh, technical advisor on all aspects of geoscience. So we're the custodian of geographic and geological data, um, and we help support the nation when there are any um, geological or geospatial kind of issues. Can you give some examples of those sort of issues or, or some of the stuff that Geoscience Australia kind of works with or works around? Yeah, absolutely. So at the moment, uh, we've got a couple of kind of key programs, but probably the most uh, recent example would be the earthquakes that happened in Melbourne. So we uh, monitor yeah, earthquakes all around the country <laughs> and whenever an earthquake kind of goes off, we're analysing how strong it is, where it is, 
uh, potential for risk and, and things like that associated with it. Uh, so we've also got the uh, tsunami warning uh, detection centre that's associated with earthquakes. It links in with other government agencies like BOM and helps get information out if uh, a tsunamigenic earthquake event would um, would trigger some of our uh, issues. Like, yeah, it's really, uh, that's actually really interesting. And um, I think that whole earthquake kind of came out of nowhere. I'm not sure anyone was, was really expecting that in the middle of Melbourne. No, a bit of a surprise. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. Hey, um, so what are you doing, Geoscience Australia? And, and I should have mentioned you're a marine ge- geoscientist, um, which is kind of yeah. exciting and different and innovative. And um, what, what are you doing in that role at Geoscience Australia? Yeah, so, so most people think of geoscience and they just think of the land. But, um, mm. of course, you know, the landscape actually continues underneath the water. It's just harder to see. And uh, part of the work that geoscience does Geoscience Australia does, extends offshore. So my work uh, for the last four years has been involved with a national seabed mapping program. And what we're doing is that we're working with uh, state and federal government agencies, the academic sector and the private sector to get organisations sharing their seabed mapping data so that we can put together a comprehensive map of Australia's marine estate. Currently, only around 25% of our marine state is mapped in a detail that's sufficient for most kind of purposes. Uh, and it may a- even be less than that, uh, depending on the resolution of, of the data and the, the use or the need um, for that particular data set. To put that into more kind of um, uh, easily understandable terms, that's like saying, if you're looking at the map of the Australian continent, saying that we've mapped Queensland and we don't know where anything else is in the rest of the continent. So we've really not got such a great idea of, uh, of our offshore um, territory and, and what, um, what kind of fundamental uh, landscape and features are down there. When people look at things like uh, Google Earth uh, and you get that satellite view and you can kind of see mm-hmm. some shapes in, yeah. in the ocean, you think, oh, well, we know what's there. Um, but that's not actually the case. The data resolution um, on those big kind of global scale maps is typically derived from a satellite altimetry. So it's measuring the gravimetric difference over the Earth's surface at each point. And based on the stronger gravity, then you'd see um, or expect to have uh, a shallower depth, so more land right underneath that point. Um, but the resolution of that data is, is very, very low. Um, and I think, don't quote me on this, but I think it's typically uh, around like, you know, a single data point for a square kilometre sort of thing. So oh, wow. we've really got no idea in a lot of the marine state um, how deep and what kind of ecosystems uh, are down there. So if we can all work together and share data, uh, we can build up that, that national map a lot quicker um, because there's a, it's a huge job to try and map um, the world's oceans. And um, as a nation, we've got the third largest marine jurisdiction in the world. Uh, so a whole lot of effort uh, rides on us to, to map that, that area for the benefit of the country, but also internationally. Um, that's really interesting. And I've been madly writing questions actually that I've got um, for you, which I'm going to throw at you in a second. But, but I, want to, um, I actually want to uh, go backwards a little bit. Um, how, how the hell did you end up in this space? Has this been something you were really interested in through school? Did you kind of fall into this? What's your background and how did you get to this point? So I grew, as I mentioned, I grew up, um, or I'm, I'm joining you from, from the edge of the Kringo Chase National Park. I actually grew up here. Um, our uh, family home is offshore 
So even though we're 30 k's north of Sydney, we're on the edge of a, a national park and the only way you can get there is by boat. Um, didn't have televisions growing up, so I was always out in the bush and, and kind of just exploring. I've had uh, a really um, intrinsic interest in uh, the way the physical world works uh, ever since being a kid because that's what kept me entertained and that's incredible understanding all the different systems and the scales that they work at from microscopic algae that occur in the oceans and are responsible for producing half of the world's oxygen to global weather systems and climate patterns and, and mechanisms. Um, the thing for me is that all the, that, that's so interesting is that all these uh, systems and processes are linked in some way and, uh, yeah, it's fantastic to, to look at how... Um, how the world's changing and understand that change. And that drove me to go and study earth and marine science at, uh, at the Australian National University. And I also looked at climate science and, and the weather and fire systems that are uh, typical kind of in Australia and just loved it. And, and after finishing uni, um, for me, the, the uh, progression uh, was to, to, to look for work with Geoscience Australia, who actually cover a lot of those um, those kind of fields. That's such an interesting upbringing. Um, you know, it's so it's so left to centre, isn't it? And so different. And um, but I can imagine it was quite rewarding. You know, having that sort of upbringing as well. I mean, I certainly didn't live um, any any sort of life that, that you did in growing up. But I, but I lived in Sydney as well, and we were sort of on the south side of Sydney. We had a massive park just up the road, Oatley, Oatley Park. It was called, and we'd spend every weekend up there. You know, exploring and looking for stuff. And there used to be old um, indigenous, you know, uh, carvings in in some of the um, some of the rock features and stuff up there. And um, I can only imagine it was you know three times the size. Uh, you know the, the stuff you were doing was was massive compared to you know what, what we were growing up in in suburbia it's just it's just amazing i mean every time you go out uh, into the bush you'll you'll if you if you've got your eyes and your ears open you'll see or hear something something new and there's been a number of times where i've um, i've gone off and i've seen something and i've never seen it again and um yeah it's just so dynamic um and so um captivating mm, that's the ending. Um, I could keep talking to you now about this for the rest of the rest of the next 30 minutes, but I, um, I probably shouldn't. So where we talk about geoscience and you mentioned and earlier back to my questions now that I started madly scribbling. So when you talked about before geoscience Australia and looking at offshore, how far offshore? So are we, are we talking a long way offshore, a little bit offshore? You know, how far does that offshore kind of extend? Well, I mean, there are a couple of different um, uh, management boundaries that, that people typically kind of think about um there's the state and territory boundaries which i think extend two nautical miles offshore so around three and a half three and a half kilometers um and then you've got the exclusive economic zone which is up to 200 nautical miles um from those state state boundaries or from the shoreline so um you know that's it's quite a significant area when you think about it and in addition to that, then it's then the area of marine rescue and responsibility, um, which is much larger again than our exclusive economic zone. Uh, yeah, it's it's a hard one to uh, try and grasp um, mentally, and I don't have a great example in terms of a comparison to to draw it to. Do you aside from you know of the world's uh, different countries? Uh, we've got the third largest marine jurisdiction in the world. And um, if you're thinking about, you know, 70% of the world being covered by water and we're responsible for the third largest kind of national kind of stake of that area, mm. it's, uh, it's, it's quite substantive. 
So it's a fair bit, yeah, fair bit to of bring size. It, oh, yes, yeah, to bring it into context, if, if we were to map uh, the rest of our uh, exclusive economic zone, um, in terms of Australia, it would take uh, like a single a single boat, uh, uh, hundreds of years, kind of mapping twenty four hours a day, seven days a week. Uh, and if you look at the the global ocean and um, how much coverage we kind of have there, so I said Australia had around twenty five percent coverage of our of our own waters, but globally we're sitting at about twenty point six percent of the seafloor being mapped. Um, and some calculations have been done by different groups to go, okay, well, what's the effort required to map the rest of that global ocean? And again, if we come back to like a, a single boat, the estimates are kind of that if it was running 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year, it would take around 970 years uh, for a single boat to map um, map the world's oceans where we don't have data at, at this point in time. And so that's where technology and, and innovation um, and collaboration really play such an important space. Obviously, we've got um, you know over 100, 160 kind of countries in the in the UN that are actually uh, looking at sharing data and working together. And um, part of that is is all well, part of those initiatives uh, cover seabed mapping as well. Mm. And, and I can imagine um, land mapping is much easier because we can see it, you know, and satellites can see it and everything else. And I'm sure there's there's um, there's specific terms and there's complex terms like refraction or something that means that we can't have satellites seeing, you know, through water and everything else. Um, so how do we do it? How, how do we map the ocean floor? Absolutely. So there are a couple of, couple of different ways. Um, at the moment, the most uh, detailed and high-resolution method is using uh, systems called multi-beam echo sounders. So these that essentially, cool. yeah, they essentially function like uh, like a dolphin's echolocation system. They send a sound wave or a, a, a swath of sound waves down, and measure the reflectance time of each of those sound waves back to a sensor on the boat from the seafloor. And by doing that, they can build up um, a three, you know a three-dimensional image or map of a point cloud of the seafloor as the boat travels along. Uh, that's the most uh, detailed and kind of uh, best method at the moment, um, how, obviously. How, how accurate is that? How accurate is that that type of um, system? Is, is it, do we get it on the water to... depth. Yeah, okay. Makes sense. And the, um, uh, was it the, well, the strength and, and um, the wavelength of the, or the hertz, the rate of the of the, the sound pulse. So you've got some 12 kilohertz systems that can map down to, I think, um, I think it's a 10, 10 kilometres, so for the deep ocean. And then you've got smaller systems that are in more, I think, the uh, yeah, 2,000 kilohertz range that are used for the shallow, um, shallow waters, so between, you know, 200, 200 metres and, 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 and closer. So there are a number of different systems, different wavelengths, different strength of that, that, sound, um, that sound waves that they're sending out, sending out. And uh, you mentioned kind of, yeah, 10 kilometres of depth. And um, I, I just think that it's, it's such a, it, it's hard to grasp just how big and how deep, you know, that that is really when we think about, let's say 10 kilometres, you know, 30,000 feet. So the same distance we're flying an airliner across the world is the same depth that we're trying to get to in the middle of the ocean. Um, Absolutely. You could, you could hide Mount Everest in the ocean and, <laughs> and people wouldn't know that it's there. So it's amazing. Um, so how else do we do it? Uh, is, we, we spoke about the multi-beam echo sounders. How, how yep. else do we do it at the moment? 
Um, so there are a couple of other methods. So there's satellite-derived bathymetry. So there's the altimetry I talked about as um, earlier, which is using uh, like a uh, essentially gravity uh, differential to measure the depth of the water. But there's also um, uh, photographic photographic me methods that um, that satellites use. I mean, no expert in in how they in how they do that, but uh, I do know that you know in terms of uh, the efficacy of that of that method they are limited by water clarity and so mm. typically um and they've got you know larger uh, horizontal um larger horizontal uh, resolutions as well so um you can only really map to around like 30 40 meters if the water's super clear mm -hmm. and it's similar also with um uh with lidar systems too i believe so lidar is just like a, a laser or a light imaging detection and ranging uh, system. So they're shooting um, light pulses. And then in the same way that, uh, you know, measuring that sound reflectance happens with multi-beam, you're doing the same thing with, with lasers uh, in a LIDAR system. And, and those systems are typically flown on, on airplanes and same thing, have uh, quite a shallow depth band that they're actually um, uh, useful in. But, they, um, but obviously they cover a lot of distance very quickly and because light travels so so quickly, they can um, be a really uh, economic method of, of mapping shallower uh, areas. So New South Wales has done an extensive kind of LIDAR mapping of their coastlines, and there's an amazing data set that can be kind of looked at um, that has, yeah, depth kind of from 0 to 13, 40 metres, depending on the water uh, clarity at that time, uh, all up the New South Wales coast. Yeah, that's cool. And uh, I probably need to ask a question, given this um, podcast is called the Drones for Good podcast, um, we talk a lot about robotics and autonomous systems. Is there emerging technologies for robotics and autonomous systems or, or underwater drones that you're using to um, either gain more clarity or, or map large areas? How is emerging technology kind of contributing? Yeah, so this is this is where things are starting to get really interesting. As it, when I talked about before, you know, the amount of effort of, of a ship um, mm. to go and, and map, you know, there's an enormous resource cost associated with a, with a manned vessel mapping um, the, the ocean floor. You've got, um, you know, the fuel required to carry the extra personnel you need to be mm. cooking and feeding them. It's just enormous. And with the, with the advent of, like, autonomous um, vehicles and, and, and vessels and that uh, that remote piloting capability we're really seeing uh, starting to see some exciting leaps in what's possible in the seabed mapping space so just to kind of go through uh, some of them there are um, there's a, a prize called uh, the X prize which is a competition run I think in the in the Mediterranean uh, last year or the year before where um, organizations had 24 hours to map 250 uh, kilometers uh, square kilometers so 250 square kilometers uh, to bring that into perspective that's about five times the size of Sydney Harbour and they had 24 hours to map that um, at a resolution of kind of five meters or less so a five meter grid cell size um, so that was that was uh, that um, that competition uh, was done all autonomously and the, the winning um, the winning organization uh, used a, a team of, of, of people to uh, drive a um, unmanned surface vessel 
that could go and, and map this area rapidly. And that surface vessel was also able to deploy a smaller, um, a smaller uh, like automa auto automatic um, like submarine as well. So there's some really interesting stuff that means that the, the effort and the costs associated with mapping the seafloor could kind of rapidly come down. We're also seeing uh, smaller, faster, lighter kind of LIDAR systems being developed and a lot of testing going into how they can be um, attached and used with, with aerial drones. So that would be uh, amazing in terms of the really near shore and really shallow kind of rocky regions that it's just too dangerous to take a vessel in and map, but really important that we have an accurate um, accurate charts and um, understanding of those of those shallow coastal regions because that's where all or the majority of um, of, of ship um, crashes and, and groundings occur because uh, we don't have um, great knowledge in, in some of these spaces. So it'll be really interesting to see how, um, yeah, the LIDAR application uh, with, with unmanned aerial vehicles um, develops in the coming years. And so uh, very excited to, to continue seeing developments in that space. Um, there are also, uh, I guess, new kind of mapping techniques uh, from just using UAV imagery, so more of that um, that kind of multi-view structure from motion kind of um, science. Uh, so we are seeing developments there. Uh, that gets a little bit tricky when you're dealing with water depths probably greater than um, you know, two to three metres, and it's, it's not great if you've got any kind of uh, suspended sediment in the water and you don't have that nice clear water clarity um, but still definitely an important kind of way to classify ecosystems um, in that shallow intertidal zone uh, and understand the, the depth contours and, and um, environments there. And I'm assuming there's um, there's areas we just or, or I'm assuming there's things we, we just don't know at this point too, that there must Absolutely. be areas of the seafloor that we, we actually just have a big black hole around. Um, it'd be yeah. really interesting to have, uh, to even do some of this mapping, even the five metre um, fidelity, but then have a have a, a smaller vessel or smaller something that could actually go down and do some some more detailed mapping um, if, if something was found, you know, what is that that we're looking at um, and, and go and do that? Is, that? is that part of the idea as well? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so often in search and rescue kind of operations or you have to do like a, a course level uh, search first and then that would identify kind of your high um, priority targets where you go and do more detailed mapping. Um, and I know that with the, uh, the search for MH370. I was just uh, going to mention that one funnily enough. Yeah, <laughs> there, was a, there was a whole lot. Of, I mean, it's, a, it's an enormous area. Um, that was mapped in that search, and like it was, it's really, um, it's really unfortunate that that the um, that the plane and the black box kind of weren't recovered. But um, such an enormous stretch of ocean uh, was mapped, and in the first stage uh, of that search had to be that that initial mapping, so that we understood what the the local kind of geology was like, where the undersea mountains and ridges and canyons were, so that when you drop down these like higher detail uh, mapping machines or video um, sleds and things like that, that you don't actually just run it into an under, underwater mountain because that still, that still happens. <laughs> and uh, there's, a, there's a, a funny example of, I think it was the, the US military were conducting operations off um, 
off Cuba in maybe the early kind of 2000s and they turned their turned their sonar off um, and they were just navigating by um, uh, by by charts and the charts had no idea that there was a huge underwater mountain <laughs> off the coast of Cuba and this submarine ran uh, headlong into an underwater mountain and they thought they'd been attacked by uh, uh, an external like vessel and they <laughs> did an emergency surface they got to the top they sent someone along the front to check out the damage and there's coral all over the front of the <laughs> of the submarine so we really yeah really don't know in a, in a lot of places what's under the what's under the uh, the surface of the ocean and a stat that kind of gets thrown around a lot or a fact that gets thrown around a lot is that we that we currently have a better understanding of the surface of mars yeah. uh, than we do our own oceans and i mean that's a that's a pretty um incredible thing as well right it, it is and, and i feel like i know the answer to this question but i'm really interested in your answer why bother why why do we care you know about the mapping of the, of the seafloor why, why do you care why does geoscience australia care so that's i mean the seafloor and uh, the ocean is critical for life on our planet and the um, the economy and society that that we uh, that we like to enjoy. Mm. Um, so there's safety of life at sea in terms of navigation, um, marine infrastructure. If you don't know uh, what the the surface of the um, the ocean floor is like. Um, then it's very difficult to establish offshore infrastructure in energy um, sectors, in uh, telecommunication sectors as well. I mean, if you think about your mobile phone and your internet and, and how that data actually, you know, gets to you, uh, most people think, oh, it just comes through the air. Yeah, sure. Um, but there are, actually, there are actually lines that connect Australia, telecommunications lines that connect Australia, um, to Southeast Asia and the rest of the um, of the rest of the world, and that's where the majority of data transfer is actually happening um, at this point in time. So to lay those cables and to make sure that they're being laid in places that are um, geologically stable and secure and um, and well protected, um, you need to have an understanding of what the seafloor is. We've also got um, you know a, a large portion of the south. Pacific and Southeast Asian countries and just global populations who rely on the ocean, um, you know, it's a key kind of source of protein in, in their diets. And if you don't understand where different key ecological features are and habitats are that are important in supporting and sustaining fish stocks, then you can't manage and protect them properly and ensure that there's enough replenishment um, so that sustainable um, harvesting of, of of seafood and um, marine kind of protein can happen as well. So really critical to understand where those key uh, ecological features are and those habitats are so that they can be protected, preserved and properly managed. And I'm sure we'll find at some point where we will continue to find um, species and, and other types of, you know, life that we've never seen before, you know, despite being on the planet for as long as we've been on. Is that, is that part of the process too, this whole mapping process, is finding new things that we've, you know, new species that we've never, never known about before? Uh, it certainly can be a component. And it depends, um, I guess, what, what element of the mapping you're looking at. So there's that, that physical 
geological side of the mapping that has to kind of come first so that you mm. can identify the ecosystems um, and all the, the potentially the potential target ecosystems. And then there's that biodiversity and characterization side that has to be established, which is done more through like camera operations and grabs and samples. But um, the uh, Schmidt Ocean Institute, which is a philanthropic organization uh, founded by um, I think Eric, Eric Schmidt, who was one of the uh, key Google um, oh, right leads, yeah. um, is a, an amazing organisation that uh, last year um, they fund this, this uh, international like, research vessel and that vessel was in Australian waters last year during the pandemic and they actually uh, had a whole number of surveys and, and planned voyages that they uh, had to had to can because of the restrictions of the pandemic and what they did was that they went and did a whole lot of mapping in the uh, coral reef um, and the coral sea and great barrier reef uh, and some uh, some of the work that they did um, discovered species that we didn't know uh, existed in the Great Barrier Reef but had been found in other reefs and and they also discovered an underwater mountain or an atoll reef um, a submerged reef that was 500 meters tall that had <laughs> no one had ever seen before and it was I think it came to within 40 meters of the surface of the ocean so you know that's like hiding the Empire State Building or, or <laughs> the Eiffel Tower off the off the Great Barrier Reef and we had no idea about it and um, organizations like that that kind of are able to go out and and have um, the mapping capability but then also the autonomous capability they've got this great um, robot uh, well it's a, a, a unmanned kind of vessel called Sebastian, and that um, that's a deep sea diving uh, robot that's that's tethered, and it has uh, 4K video linked back to the surface, so they're able to go down, collect samples, and really see what's um, down in the deepest kind of parts of the ocean. So, yeah, it's just amazing what um, what can be done when you look at um, applying kind of the robotics world to this this sort of fundamental blue sky discovery um, theme of, of ocean science. Mm. And one one of the, um, we're running a bit short of time, but I could, I could talk for another half hour on this, but one question or one part I do want to talk about that I, I enjoy getting an understanding of is data. So how, how do you guys, you know, when we're talking about this massive amount of air and this massive amount of space and everything else under the water, how are you managing these data sets? It must be a huge amount of data that's being managed. And, do you, and I guess the following question is around standardization of data. Are you setting, is there a standard for data collection to allow that collaboration? Just let, let's talk data for a few minutes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no worries. And that's a really good question. And obviously one of the key issues when you have so many organisations trying to work together and collect data to then share um, mm. for the benefit of everyone. So the kind of mantra in the seabed mapping community is collect once, use many times, and mm. that comes down to standards. And if we don't have um, a good understanding of the standards that are needed for all kinds of different data uses, then it's hard to encourage the seabed mapping community to collect uh, at a resolution that not only meets their own um their own needs but the needs of the wider community and some of the work that we've been doing through Seabed has been in getting the community together to help establish and define those community standards so we've got a um, uh, a publication called the Australian multi-beam guidelines uh, and that goes through how um, how collection and acquisition should kind of be run uh, keeping in mind the, the broader kind of population well 
broader uh, seabed data users needs. In terms of managing the data when it comes through, that's an issue that um, we've been working on now for a couple of years. And we've started uh, developing cloud infrastructure to help us um, manage incoming data, looking at automated processing, because, I mean, that's one of the most expensive elements as well of, yeah, um, of managing data is when it comes in, there's a whole lot of processing that needs to be done before a data set can be considered um, you know, a usable product. And looking at automated ways of streamlining that process um, to take you know that that manual touch away from it and also produce more consistent products as well. So that's something that we're also working on at, at GA. And then there's the um, the integration of data sets to produce like standardized maps. And so we've got another project that's looking at okay, if we have you know four or five data sets all collected to different resolution in an area, and we're looking at the back straight as a bit of a pilot, how can we take those data sets, create a new point cloud, and then create a new map that's defined at a resolution that the user wants to help inform modeling or, or other data uses that would be blocked by the time and effort required to process all those different surveys and create that, that, um, that single product to use in their own uh, processes. So, yeah, there are a number of different, um, different aspects of, of data standardization that are just crucial to the seabed mapping um, sector and we're working through them as a community. And I think that's the important point. If it's not done as a community, then mm. you can't be sure that you're going to meet everybody's needs and, and that you're you're trying to guide um, you know, collaborative efforts in the right direction. Yeah. And we've got things like, you know, Google Maps and Google Earth, which is very a land-based application. Do we have a, an underwater-based application or do you see that coming in the future, the ability to go and, you know, go and um, walk through these underwater mountains and everything else? Yeah, absolutely. Um, currently, we're, we're building a portal that, um, well, the portal's already out, so people can go and have a look at all the oh, cool. uh, bathymetry data that we've collected and seabed mapping data that we've collected. So happy to share um, a link to you uh, mm. with that. And, and what it shows you is where the coverage exists and then also um, the, where that data can be accessed and can give you a bit of a, a view of that information. And there'll be, yeah, sure, a lot of applications and, and probably different platforms that then eventually look at picking picking that information up and, and reserving that because all the data that we uh, collate is open source and, and whatnot. Um, I know Google have been working on uh, some underwater kind of like um, tools and things like that as part of Google Maps, which is a cool cool way of, um, of opening the underwater world up to uh, the broader population. Uh, because, yeah, too often data kind of sits in, in hidden repositories and, and never really sees the light of day. And, and yeah, part of the Seabed program, as I, as I mentioned earlier, is, is connecting all the state and federal government agencies, the academic sector and the private sector to share that data and make it openly available and easily discoverable. And that's what we're trying to do through this Oz Seabed portal. That's cool. That's uh, I'm really excited, and I'll, I'll make sure we get that link, and we'll throw that in the uh, in the show notes so people can go and have a look at that and, and see what it's all about. Um, the last question I'll, I'll ask you, Tayera, is around the future. So, what, what's the future look like? You know, is, are we going to we're going to get this job done in twenty years? Are we going to get done in five years? What, what's the what do you think? The, the, what's your future in in, in or your future guess for this area? Oh, it's a really it's a really interesting question, and a lot smarter <laughs> people than me have kind of. Uh, uh, put estimates together and, and also, you know, been stumped by it. But mm. currently um, there are 
again, in terms of saying the ocean's fully mapped, um, there are subtleties in terms of, you know, what that data resolution is for, for mm. the mapping of the world's oceans. There's a phenomenal uh, international initiative that's being conducted at the moment called um, the Jebco Seabed 2030 Initiative, and that's co-run by the, the Nippon Foundation uh, from Japan and uh, the Jebco, which is the General Mathematic Chart of the Oceans uh, organisation that was originally established in, um, in London or Britain, I think. Um, and so what their goal is, is to have the seafloor mapped by 2030. Um, and they've got uh, a minimum kind of data um, coverage that they established with that um, goal. Um, and they're working with you know, the hydrographic organisations and, and seabed mapping organisations around the world to centralise the international data and, and deliver um, global grids of bathymetric data. So that's a fantastic initiative uh, and an, an ambitious one. Um, and that's where I kind of see technology kind of really coming into it. And I've talked to a number of people from uh, the initiative and, and it's their view that uh, drones and unmanned surface vessels will absolutely be a critical component of us developing that that international map, and I think that we'll see uh, countries as well adopting uh, those those techniques and um, and methods because uh, with the responsibility to map the, the shallower regions, um, it, it might seem kind of counterintuitive, but they're actually a lot more effort intensive than the deep regions because if you think about a beam of sound or a beam of of light traveling down, it travels down. Um, from a point source, almost like a cone. Mm -hmm. So the deeper you are, the wider the coverage of that cone when it reaches the seafloor. So when you're in the deep oceans, and I think a, a quick kind of calculation is it's usually the coverage is four times the water depth. Mm -hmm. So if you're a kilometre high, your beam's actually covering like a 12-kilometre kind of, um, oh, sorry, a four-kilometre uh, mm. width. Um, so when you get into the shallow waters, you've got to do far more, you know, uh, lines, you know, you're mowing the lawn, you're really going back and forth. Yeah. And those lines are a lot tighter and closer together when you're in the zero to 200 metre kind of isobaths. You're much, much more energy intensive to map a smaller area. And so I think that um, that the development and, um, and the uptake of uh, autonomous mapping in those um, shallow regions is going to be a really important and, and a crucial component of us generating uh, our national seabed maps and also the international seabed maps there's this awesome example of um of a, an autonomous surface vessel powered by the wind that's just conducted uh a trip from i think it was uh la to hawaii hmm. mapping the entire way yeah, just right. using wind traveled through a cyclone <laughs> captured data no problems <laughs> like it's incredible and we'll, be seeing a lot more, I guess, developments in, in this space because of the of the reduction in cost. And there's always that, I guess, that price barrier for, for emerging technologies where you've got the early adopters really fronting that innovation and development cost. And then as soon as you kind of hit, you know, get past that hump, you'll see more widespread adoption. And I think that we're hoping, well, I'm hoping that we're getting close to, uh, I guess, that, that, that adoption phase and what we need uh, organisations to really embrace and support um, you know, the, the different industries that are innovating in this space.
yeah, that's um, it's really interesting, and it's a really interesting area. And and uh, there's far more smarter people than me, like yourself, working on this, which is which is a good thing. Um, if people are interested, Aero, in, in getting a bit more detail around the National Seabed Mapping Team and, and what you guys are doing at Geo Australia, where where can they go for some more information on it? Absolutely. Um, so we've got a website that's ozseabed.gov.au, um, and I'll I'll send the link through for that. That uh, is our kind of homepage, and you can access the data portal and a number of different resources through there, find out uh, find out about our initiatives and the work that we're doing. Fantastic. Ero, thanks for uh, the work that you and your team are doing. It's it's obviously hugely important and um, it's crazy to think that we have such a good understanding of land but such a poor understanding of underwater. So I think, um, you know, that the work you guys are doing is going to lead towards, you know, massive outcomes into the future. So, you know, on behalf of Australia, thank, thanks for the work you, you guys are doing. Thanks very much for your time, Andrew. Pleasure to talk to you. No worries. And hopefully we'll talk again soon. Sounds good. All right. Ciao. Thanks, Sarah.